0: Bismillah.
1: how do muslims experience and practice what is the lived practice of islam and how is it understood in different contexts that shift into the study of religion has been very important for me because this is where i where i started recognizing the importance of the literary the visual and the and the sound arts in Lived experiences of Muslims, how they connect with their faith through the art. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to the Harvard Islamica Podcast. I'm Maryam Khazmi.
3: And I'm Harry Bastromaggio.
2: In this final episode of our series of interviews with former Udwadid program directors, we hear from Ali Asani, Murray A. Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Professor of Indo Muslim and Islamic Religion and Cultures.
3: Professor Ali Asani was born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya, and came to the United States to attend Harvard College where he pursued a concentration in the comparative study of religion and graduated summa cum laude in 1977. He continued his graduate work at Harvard under the supervision of Anna Marie Schemmel in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, receiving his PhD in 1984. Professor Asani holds a joint appointment between the Committee on the Study of Religion and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and serves on the faculty of the Department of South Asian Studies and African and African-American Studies. He has taught at Harvard since 1983, offering instruction in a variety of South Asian and African languages and literatures, as well as courses on various aspects of the Islamic tradition.
2: Professor Asani told us what it was like to come to Harvard as an undergraduate from Kenya and to enter Islamic studies as a student from an ismaili Shia background.
1: When I came to Harvard, Harvard was not a very diverse place. The number of international students wasn't very high. And diversity at Harvard meant what part of America you came from. They were starting to recruit people from different backgrounds, but it was just the beginning. People would look at me and say, oh, where are you from? And I would say, oh, I'm from Kenya. And no, you can't be Kenyan. You know, you, you don't look African. And then when I'd say, well, you know, in, in Kenya, there are people from different parts of the world. And my family has been there for 200 years. And, you know, in, in Kenya, people like me are called Asian Africans no, you can't be Asian because, you know, Asian means somebody who's coming from the, you know, East Asia. So I couldn't be called African and I couldn't be called Asian. A pivotal moment in my undergraduate career was in an Arabic class that was being taught by a professor from American University of Beirut. And in the middle of the class, the professor asked me, well, what kind of Muslim are you? Out of the blue. And so I told him I was Ismaili. His face turned all red. And he said, La hawla wa illa billah. And he was absolutely horrified because I was the heretic. And this was my freshman year. And that's when I realized that the Islam that I knew and understood didn't have a voice at Harvard there was another class that I went to where the professor would be constantly making jokes about assassins and people being on secret missions and all the lurid Sunni stereotypes would come out and it would be directed to me implicitly or explicitly. And this went on even during graduate school where I would find that there were always or almost always Sunni perspectives on everything that you studied. There was no mention on any Shi sources and so on. So I decided that no, I'm gonna work on this Ismaili materials and I need to be able to represent my own tradition. And fortunately, the study of religion program at that point recognized this and they were very supportive. My junior tutorial was on Ismaili history and taught taught by Peter On. So on the one hand, I had this traumatic experience, but on the other hand, I found people were sensitive to the situation and were trying to correct that. After I got tenure, I could actually teach courses on Ismaili history and thought, include Ismaili materials in my, in my courses, which previously at Harvard would have been unthinkable. But these attitudes still exist. We need to do more at Harvard to try to create a more inclusive environment in terms of expressions of Islam and you know, create genuine curiosity among students to learn about different perspectives and not be so judgmental and stereotypical. The Islamic studies programs here have to play a very important role in creating inclusivist discourses about Islam, not just in a geographic sense, so we're not just focused on the Middle East, but also in terms of interpretations of Islam, we need to be more welcoming of this diversity of Muslim experiences. I did have a conference when I was the al lead director on intra-Muslim relations, where brought together different people from different groups and really powerful. And many of these people who came said it's the first time there to participate in an event where they could talk about their interpretations and viewpoints without being judged So that's also another very important role for the university to play, this safe space where different people can come and talk in an environment that will uh, allow their voices to be heard.
4: I was wondering, when you were an undergrad, did you encounter many other Muslim students who had those kind of reactions?
1: I did, but interestingly, the Harvard Islamic Society was not that active at that point. I do think the Harvard Islamic Society today has been very open. It it was not always the case. I do think that there've been this attempt to try to create intra-Muslim understandings, you know, recognition of different interpretations of Islam.
4: I wanted to also ask about the state of Islamic studies at Harvard in the 70s. I know there was Wilfred Smith, Anne-Marie Schimmel, Musil
1: Mahdi, Oleg Grabar. Abdul Hamid Sabra in history of science. Yeah, we had a great expertise. I think we had such luminary figures and there have been certain fields that just have not been replaced, like history of Islamic science. And when Abdul Hamid Sabra retired, the chair just disappeared. He trained several generations of students. I was a teaching fellow for a course on Islamic civilization. This was part of the core curriculum at the time for undergraduates. It was a collaboration where every week a different professor would come in and talk about their specialty. So Oleg Grabar would come and talk about art and Zapra would come and talk about history of science. So on the one hand, it was a very interesting experience to see all these people collaborate on a course. But on the other hand, there was a disjuncture because everyone had a different lecture style. And now I think we've developed more Um, emphasis on contemporary Islam, and less and less on pre-modern Islam. There's a shift that's taken place.
2: Professor Asani told us how he came under the mentorship of Anna Marie Schimmel and how she shaped his interest in studying Islam through literature and the arts.
1: I came here as an undergraduate from Kenya. And uh, at that point, I I wasn't sure. I wanted to do something Islam related, but I wasn't sure exactly what because when I got here, this is the days before the internet and stuff like that. So I had no idea what the curriculum here was. the syllabus, or even what the place even looked like. So it was first adjusting to being in a totally new environment, coming to the United States, and then trying to figure out how Harvard worked as an institution, which was very intimidating. Towards the end of my freshman year, when I was thinking about what I was going to be majoring in, they announced this comparative study of religion as a major for undergraduates. So. I applied, the only restriction they had was that there were only 10 students who were, they were allowed to admit only 10 students. So we went through an interview process um, where I think I had several faculty interview me. and um, And that's how I got into the comparative study of religion. I was the only non-Christian student in that, in the sense that nine of the students were all focusing on some aspect of Christianity. And I was the only one who was doing a non-Christian tradition, and that was Islam. It was a little bit intimidating for me as a sophomore from Kenya to read, you know, Rudolf Otto and people who wrote all about Christian thought, and I had no idea what, what they were talking about because I had no frameworks. I do remember going to Bill one time and saying, this is totally alien to me, I just don't understand this language. And he was very reassuring that things will fall in place It was during my sophomore year that I actually ended up meeting Anne-Marie Schimmel. So I was looking for a course to take, and there was a course called Introduction to Islamic Literatures. And so I decided to go to shop the course to see what it was like. The room, actually, that was assigned to it was actually her office, because she wasn't expecting a lot of students to take this course. And as it turned out, I was the only student. So I remember the first class, you know, I went in and I said, is this where the course is being taught? She said, yes. And then I sat down and then exactly like 10 minutes past the hour, because that's when the classes officially started. She just closed her eyes and she started (laughs) and, you know, she was behind her desk and I was there trying to figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do? I started taking notes. She would have names and places that I had no idea where they were. I would just write the names out the best I could. And then exactly on the hour at 12 o'clock she stopped and she opened her eyes and then she said, any questions? And I was like flabbergasted, like, you know, so I asked (laughs) her, I think there were some spellings that I wanted. She put some names. So she gave me the proper spelling. And then she said, great, I'll see you next week. I left the office. And then I realized I didn't know anything about the requirements, the syllabus or anything. So I went back to her and I said, what about these? She said, oh, you know, I don't worry about those things. I'll just give you some books to read. You can read them and then you come up and then you write a paper at the end. And that's how I countered uh, anne Mary Schimmel. At that point, I had no idea who she was. I was just fascinated with the way she just closed her eyes and she just talked (laughs) and reeled out all these names. I said, wow, this person's so learned." It's only later that I found out, you know, what a, uh, what, a, uh, what a wonderful scholar she was in, not only Arabic and Persian and Turkish and Urdu and all these kinds of literatures, but also her interest in mysticism. So I continued taking courses with her while at the same time continuing my Arabic and work in, in religion. But I think she really introduced me to this, uh, to the notion of how one can study uh, a religion uh, and the culture of a people through their literature, and what insights literature can provide, especially poetry can provide, into uh, in, into things. And she was very much into this idea that, you know, you can learn more about the culture of a people through their literature than their political histories which she always, she used to show to the, the miserable political history. So if you really wanted to get an essence of what a people were like, or a culture was like, you do it through their literature and then turned out also to the arts because she was into calligraphy and things like that. So she actually, for my BA thesis, she encouraged me to work on the Guinan literature of the Ismaili community, which I was very familiar with. And so that was my thesis and it turned out to be uh, a very interesting work for me because it laid the foundation for all the other work I started doing as a graduate student and then even later on as a faculty in this field of the studies of kinans, which was at that point, a totally unexplored field. When I went on to study uh, do PhD work under her in Near Eastern languages and civilization, she encouraged that interest. In the Ghinans, which are all written in different Indian languages, and she encouraged me to do Urdu and she encouraged me to do Sindhi and so on. So I really took a very South Asian bent. So my first couple of years were a lot of Arabic and Persian, but then my graduate work went very much into the direction of South Asian languages and literatures. And then I actually ended up writing my PhD dissertation on a medieval uh, Hindi poem, it was part of the Ghinan literature. Uh, but again, under her supervision. And that turned out to be quite an adventure because it involved me in manuscript work and editing work with traditions that were partly oral, but also partly written, and working with manuscripts where the words were totally distorted and trying to figure out what the word could mean because people would project meanings onto the text and so trying to recreate a text, what it meant, and she was uh, enormously helpful. We would spend hours trying to decipher some of these puzzles, you know, and she would say, "Oh, maybe it's from this Arabic word, or maybe it's this Persian word, distorted, Uh, and then fortunately for me, is that when I finished my uh, doctorate work, I actually ended up teaching right at Harvard, so, and she continued as a mentor, so it's, I was really, really very, very fortunate that I had somebody who I encountered in my sophomore year in college and took me all the way through to even being a junior faculty uh, at Harvard and sort of um, shaping my career and my interests. So, so I would say I didn't meander into medicine or anything like that. I was just very focused because I had a mentor who was very focused and knew exactly what I, um, what I should be doing and had, um, But at the same time was also um, because of her love of languages also encouraged that within me too.
2: Professor Azani talked about the limits of area studies and a focus on texts, and the importance of studying Islam as a global and lived tradition.
1: You know, if you tie up Islamic studies with area studies, you're creating really these artificial boundaries and you're helping perpetuate those. So I've always felt that we really need to think about Islam in global terms and in transnational terms, because in reality, there are all these influences going back and forth. And that's why my appointment and the way I teach my courses, is, you know, showing the global engagements and my appointment, though, it's in religion and NELC, it's also in African-American studies, African and African-American studies and in South Asian studies. So it's to show the global reach of Islam. It's a very unusual kind of an appointment to have it in four departments, but it's also to, you know, an implicit recognition that you cannot confine the study of Islam to just one geographical area if you really try to understand its richness and its depth. And so that's been uh, interesting because people ask me like, why are you in four departments? And that's because what I study and what I teach is done in a, in a global way. So typically, my courses, uh, the introductory Islam courses, will, or a course on Sufism, or a literature course on Muslim literatures, always has approximately one third will be African materials. Hmm. And one third will be South Asian materials, and then the rest will be Middle Eastern or something like that, but I just try to make sure that I always have this global outlook in in my uh, courses. And increasingly now with the presence of Muslims in um, North American and European contexts, try to make space for that as well. So I would say that generally speaking, while we are talking about moving away from area studies to global studies, you know, and transnational, But also I think thinking Islam as a religion, not just through the philological lenses of text as a religion with with people of lived experiences. So that's also been very interesting for me to be as somebody who's gone back and forth between study of religion and the Near Eastern languages and civilizations with sort of the traditional Orientalist you know islamist text and you know analyzing texts and and doing that so i've done that work and then going back to thinking about well from a study of religion how 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 do muslims experience and practice what is the lived practice of islam and how is it understood in different contexts you know that shift you know into the study of religion has been very important for me because this is where i where i started recognizing the importance of um, the literary, the visual, and, um, uh, and the sound arts in lived experiences of Muslims, how they connect with their faith through the art. So that's not the kind of thing you could do in NELK, you know, interesting, because it's always emphasis on the written word. And here, when you start looking at religion, because religion is interdisciplinary, it's not necessarily just all philological, Right. So that's been the big shift for me. And so the work that I did with Anne Mary Schimmel really introduced me to this way of thinking because that's how she thought. Because her work in poetry, you know, Urdu poetry, Turkish poetry, Arabic poetry, Sindhi poetry, you know, provided people lenses into how people understood their faith through this poetic language and that uh, you got a very different perspective on uh people's experiences, how they constructed meaning by analyzing, you know, the symbols, the metaphors and so on. So it's literary study, but then when you say that this poetry was then performed and you're getting into the performative art, with how did people, you know, access this poetry? So the performative traditions become very important. So that's where you go into the into the into the music and the aesthetics of the music and then this connection with well, how is knowledge being constructed? It's what I'd like to call heart-mind knowledge, that on the one hand it's discursive, but on the other hand, it's also there's a very strong aesthetic component to it. So there's a fusion of aesthetics and the philosophical and the moral and the legal and so on. It's all fused together so that people experience, think both intellectually, but also emotionally.
3: It sounds familiar to similar to I should say what I understand of artists and the lives of calligraphers, right? And even in the early modern period of Ottoman and Safavid and Mughal dynasties, right? You have these huge sort of you know bureaucratic classes. But I mean, like I, I think about uh, people like who who worked on like Cornell Fleischer's bureaucrat and the intellectual, where he looks at Mustafa Ali who who is really sort of observing the empire after its apex, I guess you could say, if you believe in that decline paradigm. But there's a lot, there's a lot of attention paid to the intersection of philosophy and the arts, right? And, and so I guess my question is, through your teaching in, in looking at how Islam is expressed today, uh, devotional practice today through the arts, Are you able to see parallels with what you know about Islamic civilization in the past as well? I mean, having studied that sort of tradition.
1: You raise an interesting question because you talk about these great empires, right? The Ottoman, the Safavids, the Mughals, which we then always connect with these great works of art and architecture and so on and so forth. The problem with that is that we are conflating the experience of Islam with imperialism. Mm. and imperial monuments because these are also monuments these are works of power and they're privileging the voices of the elites and this is what Muhammad Arkun would call the loud Islam the discourses that grab attention in academic spaces and political spaces and social spaces and he calls the Islam of ordinary people are just practicing their faith don't have any political agendas it's just between them and god Mm
3: -hmm.
1: he called that's been silenced so the preoccupation with expressions of islam with power that you find is very much strong in in islamic studies because the story of islam is told through empire building and you Mm -hmm. think why is it being told through empire building Why is the story of Islam confused with empires? And I think that's that old orientalist model, right? Where Islam is seen as an ideology of power. And so the focus has been to that. Whereas what I'm arguing for is what um, Arkun called the silent, or I would even say the silenced Islam. The Islam of ordinary people who, who practice their faith on a daily basis and um, whose, whose voices are considered not have, have, have been you know rendered totally marginal or absent in academic discourse. So the implications of this in how we think about Islam today, I'll just give you an example. Uh, Michael Flynn, you know with the Trump administration, he was the first sort of national security advisor, absolutely convinced that Islam is a political ideology and very dangerous to the United States. And there is this viewpoint today that you find in the academy and so on, talking about treating Islam as if it is a political ideology. And that's the only voice that you hear. And the perception, and this has great implications for policy, you know, both foreign policy, but also domestic policy. So if you think about Islam as a political ideology that's opposed to the United States, it means all Muslims come under suspicion that they're all political agents. And so this is something that I try to to have students realize that there are many different expressions of Islam and whose Islam are we paying attention to and why are we paying attention to it, right? And whose Islam are we ignoring? whose Islam are we rendering marginal and peripheral?
3: That's interesting. So would you say, I mean, there seems to be almost strata of Islam's here from how we view it, right? The loud Islam, as you put it, and the silenced Islam. And it's interesting because loud Islam is in the active and silenced Islam is in the passive. Would you say that there's also this maybe a subaltern in, islam
1: i tend to think about religion including islam as being a phenomena that is deeply in- embedded in variety of contexts the political the historical the social the economic the literary the artistic and of course all these contexts are also connected to each other so they're not discrete but because religion is embedded in all these dimensions of the human experience as those dimensions and context change interpretations of religion change Mm. so the implication that we have from that is that Islam is there's no such thing of course as a monolithic Islam because Islam is practiced in so many different contexts so there are so many different interpretations of Islam so one it's diverse and number two it's constantly changing because those contexts are changing so religion is something that's incredibly complex given the diversity and given its dynamism. So at mm. any one time, it's, it's always in a, in, a, in a situation of flux. And so when I teach about these, my approach to Islam is to talk about that if we then start thinking about Islam, we need to start asking key questions as to, well, first remember that Islam doesn't say or do anything because it's just an imagined concept. You know, people have a concept of what Islam is, but more importantly, you have to say, which Islam, Who's Islam? right? And which context, So how is context influenced the emergence of this particular form of Islam. So when I when I talk about this loud and silenced Islam or something like that, and then whose voices we are listening to or whose voices, We are seeing, you know, depending on the different art form that you're looking at, is it's really trying to bring around first to have people interrogate, you know, get into the the notion of interpretation, perspective, and you get into power dynamics as well. Because if there are so many different perspectives on Islam, which ones are getting privileged and why are they being privileged and by whom? right so that's where i feel that sometimes the academy can become complicit with the state
3: and it it has often especially yeah, specifically that in his life. yeah yeah i mean i'm we could i mean well you could even name some people who've directly advised the state yeah. uh, on this right you know um bernard lewis is one right also often people uh, talk about Isla, you know the various Islams that exist and in, in the sense that as you pointed out the it's a the highly personal nature of faith uh, and religious expression in your experience you see anything emerging in North America that is distinct from the Islams of South Asia of the Middle East of Africa yeah
1: yeah so I think there is something different that's going on in the United States in particular, because I don't think there's any other country in the world today that has so many diverse interpretations of Islam come under the label of one country, right? So so you have people, Muslims from Somalia, you have people from Bosnia, Albania, Bangladesh, I mean, Thailand, I mean, Indonesians, Malaysians, It's just incredible the diversity right and, and not to
3: mention converts right people who converted oh been
1: yeah it. yeah absolutely and then african american traditions and so on uh, and uh, it's and the growing number of um, uh, people of uh, latin background latino so it's just a really crucible of you know pluralism of plural diverse you know not just culturally speaking but also theologically, you know, so you have all kinds of groups, the Ahmadis, the Shia, you know, different Sunni groups, then very progressive, liberal Sunni groups then very conservative groups, you know, so everybody's here, you know, so it's, uh, and it's been interesting to see how, you know, coalitions will build up or not build up, you know, between things. And it's also interesting to see how this kind of loud islam type of thing being also replicated here notwithstanding the diversity you're you're finding this certain groups are taking uh, getting uh, privileged over other groups right so i think that that's also the the politics of representation here in the united states whose voices get heard and whose voices don't get heard in, in the media spaces becomes also important. But, you know, also social media being what it is, it's also given platforms. So groups that feel marginalized and peripheral to create their own sites and express themselves. That's why I call the United States an interest, interesting uh, crucible where these experimentations are taking place about representation competing representations whose islam are we talking about and then how they interact with the political sphere
4: i was wondering if you if you can talk about your outreach work i know that in the past in your capacity as the aluli program director but also just as a professor i think you've engaged a lot with the public outside of academia yeah and so i was wondering if you can tell us about why you've been involved with that
1: yeah Well, I think there are two reasons. One is that I think I take my faith seriously. And I do feel that when it's being misrepresented, that it is my obligation to speak out about it, especially if I have the platform, because condoning hate speech and not speaking out against it is just, I think, you know, just wrong. You've got to speak out against it. So I think that's very important. Uh, I think the other reason is, and that ties in more with, the role as an educator, is that there is a lot of ignorance about Islam. And I feel that education about Islam, especially at a university, has to go beyond the world of the university. You can talk to intellectuals, you can talk to university college students, and so on and so forth, till you're blue in the face. But if it's not hitting the general public, that information needs to go out and you need to engage with the general public, because we are dealing with a major gap in knowledge, which is affecting the experiences of Muslims in the United States, of Muslims in the world, but it's also affecting all kinds of issues of uh, civil rights, civil liberties, things like that. So particularly, um, I tried during my time to do a lot more, Reaching beyond the world of the academy of academia to make sure that there was a presence, so I would reach out to groups like I had, you know, interesting conferences, or uh, I had one conference on African American Muslims and the Arts, and it was an it was like a two day thing, but we had all kinds of representatives from different African American groups come to campus including the Nation of Islam and the Newborn Islamic Hebrews and groups that some people had never even heard of. And we had a wonderful event where they were talking about their own experiences about being Muslim. There are other times I had things on uh, Islam and animals, and we would talk about animal rights and animal uh, issues about the animals from different perspectives, how animals figure in literatures, uh, in the arts, and in law, Princess Alia of Jordan came to give a keynote speech. I've always felt that it's very important for universities to reach beyond the world of the ivory tower. And I know not all academics share that viewpoint uh, because they think this kind of public education is not their responsibility, but I think it is. Because what is the use of all this knowledge if it's not changing the society around, if you're not seeking to change? So I see this as part of social engagement and public engagement. That is a responsibility that comes with the privilege of being educated. What are you gonna do with that education? How are you gonna create change in society? And if you're just going to limit it to the scholarship, but if the scholarship doesn't have impact on the larger public, what's the point? So for me, it's very important as a scholar to be engaged in this kind of work.
4: I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about Islamophobia and your efforts around that. And uh, what are your concerns regarding Islamophobia today? And what do you think the role of academics should be in this area?
1: I think today, Islamophobia has become a worldwide phenomena, uh, especially when you find forms of nationalism. Uh, are always looking for the other. And Muslim groups have become the other in many parts of the world today in using this Islamophobic rhetoric, whether it's here in the United States or in France or in India or in Myanmar or in China, you see this as a worldwide phenomenon. It has uh, different constellations in different parts of the world. and think this is reflective on the one hand of the growth of right-wing nationalisms that's constantly inventing the other and th- this time it happens to be Muslims but then they'll find another other you know so they're constantly othering people but Muslims happen to be a favorite target and then it gives rise to this perception oh look at the Muslims around the world there's a problem with Muslims and it keeps on perpetuating that And I think at the heart of it is going back to what I think is one of the biggest problems in our time is global illiteracy about religion, that our world is marked by religious difference, but people very often do not have the tools to understand religion, the nature of religion and the constructions of religion. So my approach to teaching about Islam, for instance, is based on this method uh the cultural studies method that the religious literacy project here at Harvard is also promoting uh, that to think about interpretations of Islam being influenced by political economic social forces all religions are like that Islam is not exceptional but people recognize for example the role of history and politics and so on in shaping understandings of Christianity at least if they've received a decent education but they don't recognize that same process taking place in Islam. Islam is seen as this exception. And part of that stereotype is that anything a Muslim does is just attributed automatically to his or her religion. There's no investigation. What could be the political, economic, social factors that are leading to this particular interpretation of religion? So I think this this issue of combating religious illiteracy is part of this larger project of combating Islamophobia. And this religious illiteracy has had devastating consequences for our world. It's affected, on the one hand, international relations. And it also has affected perceptions of how people, how nations perceive each other. It's affected democracies because when you have a democracy where you have a multi-religious, multi-ethnic citizenry, and then some people are being singled out because they're seen as being dangerous, that affects the democratic and the social fabric of society. It affects civil rights, it can lead to dehumanization, it can lead to pogroms, it can lead to you know, this uh, single dimensional categorization of human beings can lead to violence. So these I think are very, very important issues in our time. And I think universities have to be engaged in this battle. You cannot just say that no, our, uh, our responsibility just ends at the wall of the university and that's it. You have to take, uh, I think a very active role And so it's very interesting for me now to see how people are talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and people who have been marginalized. And then I thought, yeah, it's true that there are these marginalized, but for Muslims, people don't recognize that it's it's the same form of racism, the same form of marginalization that takes place. And we should be even talking about, yes, Black Lives Matter and Muslim Lives Matter as well. When I was running the program, I felt that I did need to do programming that spoke out against this. And I do remember that during the time when Trump was running for election the first time and the Islamophobic rhetoric, I spent a lot of effort in getting people who were talking about the impact on the Muslim community, you know, NYPD and spying on Muslim students on campus and on college. I organized many events around those issues, big events. And I made sure that people from the office of the president and the dean's office and so on came to this so they could hear about this. And I'd like to think that some of that programming and some of the things they learned led eventually to the appointment of a Muslim chaplain, right? So it was some of that advocacy work that actually then had changed at the university
3: you know it while you were speaking i was thinking uh, phobia is not the right word here right it's not that people are necessarily afraid illiteracy is the yeah um, a better way to describe it yeah. yeah
1: but it's but the fear is based on illiteracy it's based on ignorance mm-hmm. you're always afraid about things that you don't know so going back to you know your larger question that i've thought it very important as somebody who studies and teaches about Islam to reach out to the public. And I've done these events, outreach events at Harvard, but then I've also done work with different teacher, uh, educator groups around the country, done uh, workshops for journalists. And I've also tried to do some of this work internationally in Pakistan, in India, in East Africa, and so on, working with teachers who work in secular school systems to talk about religion more broadly. And I also think that also my work with the arts is then also connected with that. Because I think sometimes you know artists uh, are able to say things and do things that people can connect with in a more immediate way than any kind of sort of intellectual discourse.
4: I guess I'm wondering um, if it really is always about Literacy or fear of the unknown because in india for example islam is known in india it's been there for a long time yes
1: but the discourses on how it's understood in the context of indian nationalism the indian is always the foreign muslims are foreign intruders they're invaders they Mm -hmm. came into this country they don't belong to india the right-wing hindu groups that's what they talk about so if you look at that discourse that i came across in the new york times Anand Patwardhan, he's the most prominent documentary filmmaker in India today, whose life is being threatened now. But he has done documentaries that uncover the rise of the right-wing Hindu movement, and especially its targeting of Muslims. And he's done this wonderful documentary, In the Name of God, uh, which is talking about the right-wing group and which, and it's the whole Babri Masjid and its, and its destruction. And he really Ties it in to not all Hindus it's it's upper class and middle class Hindus who feel that uh, affirmative action programs for. So called backward groups or minority groups that the government has in place that they're getting privileged and they are being left out of jobs So it's economically driven and also Muslims in India. You know, many of them are working in the Middle East and they're sending lots of money, so they're getting richer and they're building wonderful houses and so on and so forth. That's a bit of envy and you could have been living there for 10 centuries and you're still a foreigner. That's the discourse. There's a very other, very poignant piece that's written by a Indian journalist, a Muslim journalist, that in new in this new India, a Hindu rose smells different from a Muslim rose. It shows that this you find this discrimination against Muslims at the very highest levels of society. So I tend to think about Islamophobia or illiteracy about religion that's existing here. It's very different. So in this documentary in, one of, in, this, in the name of God, there's a part where he interviews people in a village, Hindus and Muslims who live together, They don't have a problem with each other whatsoever. They participate Mm. in each other's festivals and so on. And And when he asked them about this Babri Mash, they said, well, this is all the work of politicians. We don't have a problem with this. So it also shows, you know, how there's a class divide and also rural urban.
3: You know, that's interesting because there's some parallels there with small communities in Eastern Anatolia with Armenians and Kurds and Turks sort of living together for centuries i mean and sharing in each other's festivals and and, and celebrations and you know come world war one and nationalism rears its ugly head and it changes everything
1: i would actually say that today the problem is not religion it's nationalism Mm -hmm. and it's religiously constructed nationalisms that are that are the bigger problem today And then these religiously constructed nationalisms are thriving on illiteracy.
2: That was selections from our conversations with Ali Asani, Murray A. Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic Religion and Cultures, in the final episode of our series of interviews with former al program directors. We hope you'll join us for future episodes of Harvard Islamica. I'm Mariam Khazni. Thanks for listening.